Welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome back. We're so happy you're here for this most special of days. It is an auspicious, auspicious day because you have been just agonizing over this story for about two months now. Weeks, months? Two, yeah, you've been talking about now. it for a long time. We, well, this is the se- well, we had to put this off about twice. Mm-hmm. because I think one thing was like, oh, it was Mother's Day, and we definitely weren't going to be recording then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you got COVID. Yeah, sure did. I don't know how I didn't get COVID, because I was with you literally the day before. And cuddling with my kid that I, we not, are not sure who patient zero was, because there were three years into this thing, and you can't tell anymore, but. She had to be patient zero. It's always the toddler. I mean, she was the one that was symptomatic yeah. when you saw us, and I have no idea how you didn't get sick. And, you know, we, it's interesting. You just don't like default test anymore, you know? Like you get the sniffles. It's like, well, the toddler has the sniffles, but. Yeah. No, she was like all up ons when we were gardening. Yeah. She was pretty darn cute. She was real cute. We made her do some child labor and plant, you know. <laughs> and the plants are, well, not all of them are doing well because of that heat wave, but yeah. the watermelon is doing the best. Of so course. Far. Mm-hmm. And the bee balm is not doing well. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. I might actually need to get a new one. Yeah. Anyway, so we are finally here. Yes, we are. After many delays. Yes, I feel a lot better, but I um, I feel like I, I'm just like a little short of breath. So my apologies in advance for all of the heavy breathing that you're going to have to edit later. <laughs> Thanks. It's between my allergies the last few like episodes. It's been a lot of mouth noises. Yeah, yeah. Well, luckily for all of us, you are telling the story today and I am here to provide input hopefully it is insightful at times but i'm in a space of learning and i am on many antihistamines and decongestants right now so how nice i got an antihistamine a decongestant i got some ibuprofen got some alcohol some caffeine (laughs) basically if you can buy it at walgreens over the counter it is in my system perfect and you know (laughs) that's what she said because we love technology and medicine we do, we do. We were I just had my first experience with sedation and it was great. I love being sedated, dude. Oh, brilliant. I mean, I am such like a hippy dippy earth mother that I really don't like to really put anything in my body that I'm not very familiar with. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a quest, but it made my root canal like a total vibe to be honest. Yeah. All I remember was that he was playing a lot of Tom Petty, which I requested. That's great. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was honestly, it was a vibe. Like the only bad thing I remember was the smell of something burning. And he's like, don't worry, it's just the cautery. And I'm like, oh. Nerve endings. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, Do you, man. Yeah. It's a good day. I just remember waking up out of my sedation and I think the first thing I said to Greg was, I feel like Billy Quiz Boy. (laughs) (laughs) If any of our listeners know the Venture Brothers. That's awesome. (laughs) I I guess on the way home, two videos were taken. One is me singing some songs from Frozen while I'm very stoned. 
and uh, the other one my husband does not feel is appropriate for other people to see. (laughs) Anyway, we should probably start talking about your story. (sighs) Anyway, as I said, in this house, in this podcast family, we love medicine. We love technology. We're here talking to you and talking to each other because of technology. Mm. But you know who doesn't love technology? Ah, segue. A man named Ted Kaczynski. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's do this. We're going to do this. I I had the hardest time writing this script, not only because I was having a wicked arthritis flare up and it literally hurt to type. By the way, my notes are full of like shorthand because I was like pecking. Using your claw finger. I was using my little claw fingers. So I used a lot of shorthand and I don't know if I can fully decipher it. Hmm. But also because like every telling of this case paints this man as some kind of genius that we're just not on his level. And even mainstream sources, you will hear, and he's like, oh, he was a monster, but he made some really good points. Even now, 30 years later, those are the points that you hear talked about. You talk, they, you know, you hear people talk about, Oh, he, you know, ran this terror offensive. He had the whole country like in fear, but he had 170 IQ and he was a math prodigy. What could have ever turned him to make him do all of these things? And it's just this narrative of this like genius turned evil by society. Mm. And I find that narrative like not only off-putting, but false. (laughs) Like after digging into the research, And so I really want to ensure that as we're talking about him and his crimes, that we're talking about the facts. We're talking about who this person actually is, because some of those things are true. He did have 170 IQ. He was a professor of mathematics. But I think that a lot of this other stuff about like, oh, his manifesto and how brilliant he was and he made all of these brilliant predictions about the future are really just, they're either false or they're not original. (laughs) Mm. whatsoever you know i also think that it's important that we talk about that for the last several decades the writings and the ideas put forth by ted kaczynski including his violent efforts have fed domestic terrorism right-wing extremism and as one lovely podcast put it quote confused 20 year old boys on telegram interesting There are still extremists of every type that write about him and to him. He has a glowing author's page on Amazon.com, which sells his manifesto in various iterations. Hmm. And for many people, like his manifesto and these like so-called brilliant ideas overshadow the fact that he was an unstable killer who ruined many lives and relished the fear that he stoked in his random acts of violence. You know, I really just don't know that much about him. I was going to ask, like, what do you remember about Ted Kaczynski? What do you remember about the Unabomber? You know, not that much. I mean, what year was that? Uh, 1978 to 1994. Yeah. So 17 years of random acts of violence, 16 bombings, three murders, 23 injuries over 17 years. Yeah, I mean, I was such a little kid mm-hmm. when he was finally taken down. Mm-hmm. And so, like, really, like, all I remember was just filtered through my kid brain. Like, I remember yeah. hearing about bombings, and I remember 
Uh, his sketch looked just like Weird Al Yankovic, and <laughs> I, I thought that, that was, <laughs> and that was like really jarring for me as a kid. Um, but that's that's really the extent of my knowledge, and because it's not really, I guess, to put it in a crass way, like it's not really the genre of true crime that I tend to consume. I still don't actually know that much, okay. so. I'm I'm a pretty blank slate here. I really before you even said you were doing this, I didn't realize he was from Chicago. Oh yeah, yeah. So I did not know that. I knew he had a manifesto. I didn't know any of the content of said manifesto. Ah, okay. That's why I could. That's why I could text sections of it to you, and you're like, "Is this Tucker Carlson? <laughs> <laughs> Who does? <laughs> Who does? Why are you sending me Tucker Carlson speeches?" I mean, I would not put it past you, but (laughs) to me, I have the same kind of like flashbang memories of the Unabomber as I do of the O.J. Simpson trial and the Clinton impeachment and Waco Mm. because my parents always had the news on. The stuff was always there kind of in the background. Yeah. And so I have these like flashbang memories of like him being arrested and seeing kind of his disheveled appearance and, you know, the same way that I have of, you know, if the glove does not fit, you cannot acquit or you must acquit, you know? Yeah. So let me give you kind of like that 10,000 yard view of Ted Kaczynski. Okay. When you pull back and you kind of look at this broad narrative of Ted Kaczynski, it is that he was an isolated genius who removed himself from the world, who sought revenge on the technological and industrial world due to his outlandish political beliefs. He believed that because of industrial society and the progress of technology, people were losing their freedom, they were losing their individualism. And the only way to return to a true the true nature of human spirit and human development was that we had to destroy industrial society. Mm. And his plan to force us to do that was through these random acts of violence, through this bombing campaign that he would spread over years and decades, attacking, he claimed people that had something to do with technology and industrialism. Very often, those bombings tended to be toward random people, a security officer, a mailman, a guy that owned a store. These Mm. weren't high-level people that had any power. Hmm. Like I said, his bombing campaign began in 1978. The hunt for the Unabomber stretched over 17 years. It involved not only the FBI, but the ATF and the United States Postal Service. It was the biggest and most expensive FBI investigation in history at the time. Hmm. Before he would be arrested, like I said, Ted Kaczynski would send 16 bombs to seemingly random individuals, killing three of them and injuring 23 others. Ted Kaczynski was nothing more than a domestic terrorist who justified his murders through his technophobia and his anti-industrialism ideology. Hmm. Just months before he was finally arrested by the FBI, he wrote and sent two copies of his manifesto, one to the Washington Post and one to the New York Times, saying that if they did not publish his manifesto, people would continue to die. Hmm. This was his ultimate, I'm going to get my ideas out there. I'm going to tell people what they should believe and that I'm not a madman. I'm not crazy. There's a purpose to everything that I'm doing here. Hmm. 
After a lot of debate, yelling, and consultation with the FBI, the manifesto was published by the magazines. The manifesto included 35,000 words. Wow. Of vitriol and half-baked philosophy about the end of freedom, leftism, quote, over-socialization, and how industrial society is bringing the end of times, how he hopes that his crusade of terror will spur the end of technology. Despite using technology in many, many ways to create this, especially when it comes to, I don't know, publishing papers and communications. Mm. Like I said, he proclaimed to believe that the rise of technology was destroying freedom and individualism. And his response to this chosen worldview was to inspire fear by killing random people. He believed that he was somehow part of a new anarchy, the destruction of civilization and the rebirth of some kind of return to nature and some kind of return to the way he personally believed that man should live in isolation, fully independent of any other human being. Man, I'm going to have so much to say about this as it unfolds. (laughs) This is why when you said like, yeah, we can record. I just won't talk much. I was like, no. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm glad because I really could not could not physically speak much and now (laughs) my brain is already humming so i'm excited (laughs) well his manifesto was put on a pedestal by some as a logical calculated essay outlining the clear faults of society and industrialization to me it reads as little more than a self-revealing tirade against the people he blames for his own failure to succeed and his own failure to find happiness Hmm. nothing that he writes in there is truly original It's a lot of rehashing. I mean, philosophers have literally been speaking about the downfalls of technology and how as where society is becoming too dependent on technology since the ancient times, literally. Mm -hmm. Far from the meticulous mathematical genius that many places, including, like I said, his Amazon.com authors page, How Stuff Works, and (laughs) TheFamousPeople.com describe him as... Ted Kaczynski was a failed gifted kid with no coping skills. He was Mm. a loner, a narcissist, an emotionally stunted man who failed to connect to his culture and lashed out because of that. While many have said that his attacks and behavior was intentionally random, I feel like we might be able to track a couple of threads, identify Mm. a couple of triggers, and many of those triggers might just happen to be his own insecurities and social failures. How shocking. Go off, queen. (laughs) So, like I said, Ted Kaczynski was, from birth, a pretty gifted kid. We're going to go into it, but I'm going to plant the seed in your head of gifted kid burnout and gifted kid lash out. Hmm. I'm just inventing the term gifted kid lash out because I think it's incredibly appropriate knowing many of the gifted kids I've met. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So let's back up after all of that intro. Who was Ted Kaczynski? Ted Kaczynski was born May 22nd, 1942 in Chicago, Illinois. So what is his sign? Girl, his chart is a <laughs> lot. It's really, I mean, he's a he's a Gemini son. What I'm really interested in is his moon in Leo. Um, he's also a Gemini rising and he's an Aquarius midheaven, which I find fascinating. The way this all like works together is really interesting to me. <laughs> 
But yes, he's he's a Gemini. If he ever hears this in his jail cell, he's going to cringe. Mm, good. That's fine. That's good. Fine. Anyway, like I said. My IQ is just as robust, Tommy. So you also graduated whatever. high school and started college at 16. So I sure did. Taint so that come special. at me, Teddy. Yep. Listen, you got a lot of burnt out gifted kids talking about you right now. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> So like I said, born in Chicago, 1942, to his parents, Theodore, who went by Turk, Kaczynski, or Kaczynski, apparently his parents pronounced it Kaczynski, and Wanda Dombach. His parents were very much that classic first-generation Polish-Chicago working-class family. His father only had a high school degree and worked in the family deli and sausage factory. His mother had about two years of college under her, but spent most of her life as a stay-at-home mom. They lived in Chicago. I think when he was really young, their home was in the back of the yards neighborhood. Mm. That means nothing to most people, but... It's where Shameless is set. Oh, really? I've Mm -hmm. never seen Shameless, and I really need to. Yeah, you ought to. So although Ted's parents did not have the highest level of formal education, they were very bright and had a really deep love of learning and intellectualism, which they never lost throughout their lives. Ted was their first child. He was very loved by his parents. They were very excited to have him. His mother described him as a loving, laughing, joyful baby. Very, very Mm. typical baby. But very quickly, if we're going to talk about what are the myths of Ted Kaczynski, we're going to jump into one very, very quickly. When he was about nine months old, baby Ted developed a severe rash all over his body. Severe enough that his parents took him to the hospital where he was treated inpatient for about 10 days. Now, hospitals were very different back then, and parents were heavily discouraged from being on premise or visiting with their children. It was believed that parents would distract the doctors from doing their work and impair the healing process. Now, obviously, we've learned a lot since then that actually bonding, oxytocin, calming, relaxation goes a long way when it comes to healing. But this was also the typical, this was protocol back then, Mm. was that babies were taken inpatient, parents got some visitation time, but not much more than that. So when Wanda took baby Ted to the hospital, he was taken away by nurses, and like any other baby, when he was taken away from his parents by strangers, was crying, wailing, reaching for his mom. Mm -mm. Yeah. This is like the one time you get to feel bad for Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. For the 10 days of his hospitalizations, doctors would perform tests while nurses oversaw his care. His parents were only allowed to visit him for a few hours during each visit of his hospitalization. When he was released from the hospital, according to his mother Wanda, baby Ted was, quote, limp and listless. What was wrong with them? Did they know? They eventually kind of put it down to a allergy to a medication that caused a systemic rash all over his body. Hmm. So I wasn't able to find out like what the medication was or, you know, the level of severity. You know, I'm thinking about this and I'm like, okay, was he, you know, if you have that heavy of a rash where it's all over your body, did you also have a fever? Did you also also have seizures? Did something go neurological? We don't really know. At the time, if something went neurological, I doubt that they would have had the technology to figure that out. Yeah, I'm just trying to think in like the mid 40s, what would you have given a baby that would cause like a full systemic reaction that would be like a common medication that people have an allergy to? I mean, it could have been something as simple as like a penicillin, a penicillin, yeah, allergy, a penicillin or, allergy. 
Yeah. I mean, some people are allergic to aspirin, and mm-hmm. that's that's a very easy medication to give to a baby. Mm-hmm. So I wondered about that. Yeah. Everything that I read just says it was an allergy to a medication. Nothing is more specific than that, unfortunately. That's interesting. But his mother said that when she took him back from the hospital, he was limp, listless. He stopped making eye contact. He stopped cuddling. That his personality completely changed. I don't know if he was still on medications at this point. I don't know if he, the doctors had been, had given him something. But as the mom of a medical baby, medications can have crazy effects on babies. They can be really sedating. It's really, really mm-hmm. easy to medicate a baby, to over-medicate a baby. Yeah, I mean, watching them, like when we were impatient, watching them calculate how to dose, especially things like, um, like my baby was sedated for probably the, her first like week or so mm-hmm. on Versad, which is a um, a benzo. Yeah, and just like watching them titrate that every day and have to figure out like, you know, if she gained five grams, how does that change the dosing? It's very very intricate. The whole thing is very intricate and. There's so much technology with which to do that now Mm -hmm. that in some ways it's almost kind of idiot proof, but certainly it would not have been in the mid 40s. No, I remember watching like when she was on all of the machines they had like, you know, digitized like all the medications, the fentanyl, the Versed, all of that stuff Mm -hmm. and all kind of the dosages. Everything was so precise, micrograms. and Yes, and the rate was extremely precise and would Mm -hmm. be edited a couple of times a day if need be mm-hmm. you know there was just a there was an extremely extremely fine art to it yeah so his mom at this point was very concerned about him at one point i read in one write-up she considered entering him into a study on autism which also kind of makes sense as we're going to talk moving forward he mm-hmm. stopped making eye contact as a baby he stopped responding to other people Even as he grows up, his social communication becomes, well, is always very poor. Um, His social motivation, responsivity, not great. Hmm. But eventually baby Ted's affect started to brighten and he apparently shifted back into his kind of normal, typical self. After a couple of weeks, a couple of months, he was back to being a normal baby. Hmm. You know what else is interesting about that that just occurred to me too is like, Watching that go down, you know, in the in my own life, like, yeah. and how concerned her doctors, especially her surgeon, was about making sure that she was only ever given like the the smallest possible dose of anything, yep. like nothing would ever be rounded up; it would always be rounded down mm-hmm. because of the way that you know all these different systems could be impacted, right? So, cognitive like systems. I can't imagine. Yeah, lung systems. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine anyone was like thinking about that quite as much, right? Like, how could this, you know, barring like causing an actual overdose? Like, what's the problem with a little bit too much versus a little bit too little? I'm sure that conversation was not happening. Yeah, nearly as much as it happens now. Yeah, I mean, a lot has been made of this period in his life, in Mm. large part because it was put forth specifically by. Ted's mother as an explanation for his change in behavior. She really held on to this as a, well, this is what happened to him. This is why he turned out the way that he did. 
I mean, this is a cultural cliche for a reason you joke about, like, oh, so-and-so was dropped on their head as a baby, and that's Mm -hmm. why you know, this and that. It's an easy answer. It's an easy answer. It's like this specific event that I had no control over. Mm-hmm. This is what per- turned my perfect joyful into the baby, my perfect joyful baby into a madman, mm-hmm. you know? And much of this also kind of was fed by the psychology of the time. Like I said, Wanda was a very much an intellectual, very much. She wanted to do the research. She wanted to dig into the science at the time. And it was a really exciting area of research. And Wanda, you know, read all of the articles. She wanted to know what the research was saying. And so this made sense to her. She felt she had been forced to abandon her baby to a cold, sterile hospital where he didn't get the warmth and the nurturance that he needed. But I also think it's important to kind of pull back. Ted wasn't neglected. He wasn't abandoned. In fact, the opposite of that. He had round-the-clock care. It was also a really short amount of time. Ten days, yeah. Yeah, that's not like an extended hospitalization. When we talk about like the research on neglect, yes, short periods of neglect can be impactful. Short periods of lapses in attachment can have an effect on you. But again, I think it's that it's important that like, well, we can pass, well, we can make judgments on past medical practices. This was the standard of care. Every child who was hospitalized at the time experienced this. Mm-hmm. And he was taken away by his parents for 10 days. He was attended to by trained nursing staff. He was fed. He was talked to. I can't imagine the nurses completely neglected him or like oversaw any of those needs, you know? No, I doubt it. The Washington Post did a really interesting article kind of talking about this experience from his mom's point of view, which is interesting because she obviously had a lot of feelings about her son that she continues to struggle to deal with. The Washington Post article kind of describes some of the really jarring pictures that Ted of Ted Kaczynski's medical treatment. They they haven't been published, at least I wasn't able to find them anywhere. But they describe, you know, this infant baby kind of splayed out by doctors, super close inspection of his skin, of these, you know, bumps and hives and things like that, that it does sound torturous. But a lot of medical treatment for babies looks jarring and feels jarring. Oh, my gosh. It's awful. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's hard and it's hard to watch your own kid go through that. Mm-hmm. Like, to me... I mean, I've, I've, we've gone through so much and I've seen just about the worst things that a person can see medically done to their child. Like, I, I don't feel like it's an exaggeration to say that, mm-hmm. um, given what we went through. Oh, yeah. I, and, yeah. I saw parts of it and it was terrifying to me and you yeah, were there the entire time. It is scary and it's, it just feels like they're so helpless and you're so out of control that like, even like the position that they hold them in to like take an x-ray. Oh my God is like jarring because they have you know they have no cognition of what's going on so they have to be like positioned in, in particular ways and or they put them you have in to the hold tubes. them down <laughs> yeah put them in the tube god that thing is terrible <laughs> so like i could very easily see and i could very easily empathize mm-hmm. with somebody who's thinking about that and seeing that in their own kid as much as you can intellectualize it there is a part of you that does just like the instinct kind of kicks in the defensiveness the fear the yeah the terror of it yeah 
again, it it's terror. And this is not to say that medical trauma doesn't exist. Medical trauma 1000% exists. Oh, yeah. But I don't think that this qualifies as neglect. I don't think that this qualifies as like a complete rupture in attachment. Mm. The way that some people put forward as many psychologists have been interviewed about this and they have said, sure, it's a rupture, but the whole thing about relationships and attachment is rupture and repair, rupture and repair, rupture and repair. Mm. (laughs) That's all we're ever doing in our relationships and our attachments. Mm. And he was returned to his parents. His parents were nurturing. His parents were attentive. Even the nurses, the doctors, they were nurturing. They were attentive to him. Even Ted Kaczynski himself has said, no, this is incredibly overblown. This is not Mm. why I am the way that I am. Interesting. But I also fully understand from a mother's perspective, it's like, oh, they they were dropped on their head as a kid kind of thing. Mm -hmm. We have no information, and I did look for it, about any neurological impairment, any seizures, anything like that that occurred as a result of this, Mm -hmm. you know, infection during his his infancy. (sighs) So yeah, that's the, a 10-day hospital stay is what destroyed Ted Kaczynski theory mm. and why I don't really buy it. Yeah, we're just going to say nah. nah. Nah, probably nah. Nah. Yeah. Lots of babies have to be hospitalized. Lots of babies mm. lose contact with their parents for much longer periods of time. Mm-hmm. But Ted, like I said, he would make a full recovery. He would grow up to be a very healthy child. He was never really ill after that. He was a healthy throughout his childhood, even his adulthood. He rarely ever had to go to the doctor. Even in college, he got a case of mono and he tried to avoid going to the doctor as long as he could. Mm. The only thing that really stood out about Ted Kaczynski as a kid was that he was incredibly bright. And this is one thing. It's not a myth. It is a fact. From early on, he showed talent in both math and music. He stood out amongst his peers as a voracious reader. Even when he was young, he was happy to discuss politics, nature, and science with any adult around him. And of course, his parents really indulged this. His mother would bring home Scientific American magazines to read to him amongst other materials. He really latched on to science and nature and music. Mm. When he was seven years old, his brother David was born. The two would become incredibly close. Despite the age gap, Ted and David did everything together. David was also a very brilliant young boy, but always felt that he didn't have the level of extreme giftedness that everybody would see in Ted Kaczynski. Hmm. While Wanda indulged their intellectual sides, Turk would instill a love of nature and a connection to the earth. He would take the boys camping, taught them to respect plants and animals, and build an appreciation of the living world. They spent plenty of days and weekends hiking and camping at Starved Rock State Park, a beautiful state park, highly recommended. And Ted, honestly, was a really sensitive kid, actually. There are plenty of stories and many tellings about Ted getting fearful and frantic if his father caught a shrew or an injured rabbit, insisting that they help it or begging his father not to harm it, to let it go, to release it, like getting hysterical when he would see injured Hmm. animals. Interesting. He was also creative. He loved music. He especially classical music, Bach and Vivaldi. Hmm. He played the trombone and piano. He would compose music for the family to play alongside his his father and brother. They would play piano and trumpet. His mother would occasionally join in on vocals. Like, 
This sounds like such an ideal family, right? I just, it's tripping me out because I'm hearing a lot of echoes of myself as a kid and also my kid. Yeah. Through this. And I'm, it's, yeah, it's kind of tough, actually. Your kid, your oldest, I think she is the same way in terms of sensitivity about animals and plants and things Mm -hmm. like that. I, I planted those watermelons with her. That girl's sensitive. Yes, she yelled at me today because I laughed at the cat. <laughs> and she thought that I hurt his feelings. <laughs> but also that, like, you know, like, she is insatiably bright and mm-hmm. curious. And it's hard to keep up sometimes with her intellectual curiosity. And, like, you want to just feed it mm-hmm. all the time, mm-hmm. you know? It's exhausting to be a parent. Jesus Christ. It is. We have been reading uh, an encyclopedia of the human body every night. And every night's a different body part. Tonight was the kidney and bladders, the urinary system. So, yeah, this is what I'm working with. Yeah, your kid's a nerd. (laughs) She is. I love her. Anyway, I share all of this because I think it's important to paint a picture of Ted's environment and his family. Mm -hmm. Unlike a lot of the perpetrators that we talked about, Ted came from an incredibly normal family. Yeah. And And nurturing and loving and Mm -hmm. like they're seeing his, his hobbies and his predilections and they want to do something productive with it. Mm -hmm. His parents made a lot of sacrifices to do that. And they really encouraged him in many different endeavors. I think we can talk about, and we're going to talk about some of the pressure that was put on him when they discovered some of his talents. Mm-hmm. Um, when Ted was asked to skip sixth grade, his parents supported it because they felt that he needed to be intellectually challenged. I'm honestly surprised they waited until sixth grade to promote him academically. I skipped seventh. Yeah. So about the same time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what kind of schools he went to. Chicago but Public. Yeah. I mean, I know for me, the underlying, like, rhetoric seemed to be like we don't really know what else to do with your kid Mm -hmm. so i wonder if if that kind of informed that in a way too that was fully what it was it was you know ted is miles above his peers intellectually at the time he seemed to be doing fine socially he wasn't the Mm -hmm. most outgoing kid he wasn't the most you know friendly and oh i'm gonna just go to the park and make friends while when i get there kind of kid But he wasn't isolated. He wasn't distraught. He Mm -hmm. tended to get along better with adults because he could talk to them more easily. But anytime you've been around gifted kids, you see that so often. Mm -hmm. His brother would say, so David would say, the way that I read a lot of the, the kind of things that David would say about their relationship and when they would play was kind of that... Ted liked to play with David as long as they were doing what Ted told him to do. Mm -hmm. So as long as you're going to build your fort this way, as long as you're going to play with this toy this way or play your instrument this way, then we're fine. Mm. When Ted was 10 years old, okay, so by sixth grade, they had moved. So my bad. So he wasn't in Chicago public schools. He was in suburban public schools. When Ted was 10 years old, the family moved from their home in Chicago to nearby Evergreen Park, which is not far outside of the city at all. The family moved for the same reason that many families do. They wanted to get the kids into a better school district. And according to one report, so the boys could, quote, enjoy a better class of friends. 
gross but okay yeah you know (laughs) i think that they also recognize that ted's intellectual abilities were not going to be met by the chicago public school system Mm -hmm. sorry in the in the 40s and 50s i don't think that they had like the gifted schools and the classical schools and all of that that Mm -hmm. still kind of ruin a lot of kids yeah and honestly ted and both ted and david seemed to really thrive when they moved to evergreen park At one point, he did complete a psychological evaluation. Um, Ted did. He was in the fifth grade, so about 10 years old at the time, right after they moved. And he received a score of 167. Hmm. This would place him about four standard deviations above the mean in the 99.9th percentile. And just because I'm a big old nerd, I found a copy online alongside a little history of Hmm. what the... I believe it was the Stanford Binet revised edition for English. I found it alongside a a little history of the Terman versus Wexler debates uh, for $950. It was really hard to not entertain entertain buying (laughs) that uh, original Stanford Binet. Yeah. But I don't have $950 sitting around right now. Mm. I do collect old psychological testing materials, though. So if anybody Uh. wants to send those my way. (laughs) Her birthday's in February. House to take Christmas gifts. True. <laughs> anyway, but like we talk about every time we talk about IQ testing, I feel like I have to have a rant in a conversation. Mm-hmm. When somebody talks about like somebody has an IQ of blah blah blah, whether it's really high or really low, what goes through your head? I mean, for me, it's it's filtered through educator brain, and I mm-hmm. think about IEP meetings I've <laughs> I've been in, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I guess I just think potentially useful piece of information mm-hmm. that is a very small sliver of what's going on with a human being at any given time. Yes. So I don't think of it as like a functionality assessment, right? It's, an, like, it's, it's not an assessment of adaptive functioning. It's not an assessment yeah. of social skills. It's not an assessment of success. Mm-hmm. It's especially at this time. So this would have been the 1937 version of the test. The test would have included like assessments of like word knowledge, so verbal definitions, picture vocabulary, comprehension, expressing understanding of factual information, um, some common social understandings like metaphors and things like that, mm. kind of social rules. Visual spatial reasoning, one of my favorite ones that they have gotten rid of in the many years, recognizing absurdities. Um, (laughs) So essentially kind of finding irrational information and doing problem solving, like what doesn't fit here. I think that that's really a fun test, but it's a little culturally biased. So I think that's why they got rid of it. Right. It is interesting, though. They were and still are very logic driven, very focused on deductive reasoning, very focused on kind of formal learning and you know, crystallized knowledge and intelligence. Mm -hmm. Especially back then, it was very heavy on crystallized knowledge. Um, We've gotten better about that now. A lot of it's language mastery and pattern recognition. So what are we talking about? We're talking about logic and memorization and learning. And those were the things that Ted was very good at. Mm -hmm. But it tells you nothing about somebody's social intelligence. Mm -hmm. Somebody's... um, pragmatic communication i have this conversation a lot with i do a lot of adult autism evaluations and a lot of people will be very surprised that i test autistic folks will be very surprised that their um, verbal comprehension skills are 
really, really high. They're like, but I I'm telling you, I can't carry on a conversation and I don't know how to talk to people. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, but you have a crazy high vocabulary. Yeah, and that doesn't translate to a conversation most of the time. Right. So you really just have to be able to explain, you know, mm-hmm. what exactly is it that we are assessing in this exact moment? Yep. This test of this block of information. Yeah. And now we're going to go test this other block of information. And then we do other tests for that. Yeah. And that's why, like, you know, I think about it as a potentially useful sliver, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. like I used to work with a guy that was a very, very proud Mensa member and he was just the most obnoxious person in the world about it. But I also remember, like, I will always remember this IEP move out meeting that um, I sat in once where we were deciding whether or not this kid um, was going to continue to receive services. And his IQ was 65. But his adaptive skills were really, really high. And he was doing, you know, pretty well in classes. And his executive functioning was pretty darn good. And so it was just this back and forth, back and forth for, like, hours Mm -hmm. about, like, the IQ alone would qualify him for services without question. But Mm -hmm. because he, you know, so fluidly, like, he was like a star basketball player and, like, he just moved through the world really, really easily and really fluently, it became a contentious conversation. And I can see why that would be contentious because I've also worked with a lot of people with intellectual disabilities that mask so well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think I think it is like then you have to really dig into like a global assessment, yeah. which it's hard to do a global assessment that's objective. Yeah. And so it just seems like it's a, obviously a bragging point for people when it's high and mm-hmm. when it's low, it's really contentious. And so that's why you do like a full psychological evaluation, which he Ted Kaczynski did complete a full psychological evaluation. And that included, I'm assuming, some kind of social-emotional measures, some kind of, you know, rudimentary personality measures. We didn't have great kind of kid personality development measures in the 40s and the 50s. Mm. But even, like, his full evaluation found that Ted was, at the time, at 10 years old, to be very well-adjusted with no significant pathology. This information, this evaluation gave his family a big sense of ease over some fears that they had developed around Ted. Mm. Because as much as Ted excelled in school in formal learning, that was a clear strength of his. He could memorize and synthesize information. There was always a looming question from the time he was young that was, what's wrong with Ted? Mm. Now we have to kind of get into... From a young age, Ted seemed to have kind of a sinister streak, an inexplicable moodiness, an isolationism. At the same time he had this kind of sinister streak early on, his family would his family would kind of describe these periods where he would, quote, go dark. Mm. He just simply stopped talking. He would pull away from the world. He would isolate in his bedroom. There would be no communication from him. And when he would communicate, when he would come out during those periods, he was hostile, a social distant. The sinister, cruel moments started even when he was young. While they initially seemed to be kind of childish pranks, he never seemed to care if these childish pranks caused harm to people. Mm. One common story that is told is when he was around kind of this preteen era, around 10 years old, 
his mom was preparing to serve dinner, so the family's kind of all gathering around. She's pulling about out that big Midwestern casserole dish hot from the oven. And Ted, in a kind of out-of-character move, gets up from the table and pulls out his mother's chair. And they're all like, why is Ted being so polite all of a sudden? And so, like, well-behaved all of a sudden. An odd gesture from this kind of, like, normally self-centered child. Wanda took this as perhaps an apology, an attempt to do well, an attempt to improve. Mm. But as she was holding the hot casserole dish and settling into the chair, Ted pulled it away. Oh. Well, Wanda fell to the ground, burning herself with a casserole dish. Yikes. His father yelled at him and Ted just laughed and ran upstairs to his bedroom where he would isolate for the next few hours. That's really interesting. Yeah, and that's just kind of one example of a lot of similar situations that seem to happen really commonly around the family. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like I'm thinking about that in in juxtaposition to like the extreme sensitivity around like animals and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that his family never quite understood. Like, why is he so sensitive to animals, to these other things, but never to people? Mm. He would be really cruel in his comments to his parents, yelling at them and blaming them. Arguments would ensue, and his parents would eventually, like, start yelling back at him. Turk reportedly hurled comments at the at Ted as a child, saying, you're acting like a two-year-old. He would call him a creep, mm. because he just seemed to have no empathy for humans. He was emotionally immature. He had no sense of perspective taking, of empathy. And in these periods, he would just, after these things would happen, he would have these periods of just going dark. Like I said, isolating in his room for hours or days at a time. And when he would emerge, when he would finally kind of come out, the issue would never be addressed. Hmm. It was never talked about. It was never processed. There was never a consequence. The fights, the isolation, the silence, and that just return to normalcy from the erratic behavior was just the status quo of their household. Interesting. The further it would go on, where it would just not be addressed, Ted never seemed to have consequences for these things. Mm. Other than the yelling and the fights and the insults hurled at him and by him. Ted would later write that he felt that he was, quote, treated like some kind of sickie by his parents. He was either obsessively coddled or ignored and treated like he was less than. He was celebrated for his intelligence and then called a creep and a child. Mm. And honestly, he never seemed to grow out of this behavior. From childhood into adolescence and even in adulthood, even well into his 40s and his isolative period, he's sending shitty, mean, cruel letters to his mother because she sent the wrong-sized box or the wrong items and the wrong canned food in a care package to his cabin in the middle of the woods. Do you think the thing happened to him that sometimes we do with gifted kids where we we stop, you know, we see how bright they are and we see how, like, academically accomplished they are mm-hmm. and we kind of automatically assign like an a more mature level of emotional cognition to them than they could possibly live up to because of where they are intellectually like do you think that happened to him 
I don't know because I don't think that he ever showed a level of emotional maturity that was even consistent with his age. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I think sometimes that doesn't happen, like, or that people Mm -hmm. don't Mm -hmm. pause to think about the fact that that's, like, two different things, Oh, yeah. Oh, I talk to parents all the time about, like, listen, like, physical maturity, cognitive maturity, and emotional maturity are three completely different Mm -hmm. levels. And when they are in, like, three different places... As a parent, that is really hard to manage. And I think it could be really mm-hmm. easy as a teacher, too, to, like, lump together at least two of those things to just make it easier mm-hmm. to to work with this particular kid, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, I've seen it really often. I think it's really obvious when, um, especially when it's the physical maturity is at a really high level, mm-hmm. but the other two are not. Mm-hmm. You know, I assessed a kid who was 14, but I swear he looked 18, 19. Yeah. Like, just a tall, muscular dude. And I saw him in the waiting room when I grabbed him for testing. I was like, you are not the right child. Mm. But he was just the sweetest, like, wanted to talk to you about Pokemon and Minecraft all day. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I just, like, I feel like it's part of, you know, in my theory at least, like, I feel like it's part of what ends up building out what becomes gifted kid burnout is, like, never being treated... And it's not like an indictment against his parents because obviously they were doing yeah. a great job with what they could do. But I think they were trying. I think they were. They gave in to the emotional immaturity at times. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think when a kid is really, really smart, it is sometimes exhausting to keep up with what they're saying to you all the time. <laughs> As you have learned. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I just wonder, like, because it is, it's really hard brain work to have to think like you know my kid that always sounds like they are delivering a doctoral dissertation defense Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. actually you know emotionally seven or eight years old like Mm -hmm. having that pause when they sound a certain way and reason things out a certain way is really really hard yeah and then like how do you discipline that kid Mm -hmm. when they're at a cognitive level and an emotional level that are so different yeah um And I think that that is a fully, a very important thing to think about. I do think, like, Ted never showed the emotional maturity Mm -hmm. at any point. You know, again, like I said, even when he's in his 40s, he's lashing out like a teenager at his parents because you sent me sardines and you know I hate sardines. Mm. How dare you? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Again, I don't know. What efforts were there to ever get hit to build his emotional maturity? It didn't seem like there were any. And again, like this is, it's not an indictment on his parents. They didn't know, like, again, psychology had not developed enough to prepare I mean, them I, for not to, a Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. And I think, like, not to put too fine a point on it, but I think sometimes, like, when a kid is really, really bright, you think, well, they're doing that themselves. Yeah. You know? Like, obviously, yeah. they're smart, so they're going to get there. They're choosing to do this. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but uh, there's a really interesting kind of quote that I read from Wanda who she talks about, well, we tried everything that we knew how to do. And then they ask him, they ask her, well, did you ever try therapy? And she's like, well, no, no, Mm. no, he he didn't need that. And again, I think about kind of the cultural context of this being the 1950s yeah you know the kid the kids that needed therapy were the ones that you know it it just wasn't considered to be an option yeah yeah 
at that time in the culture. (sighs) Some other behaviors that were noted by his family. I'm just going to put these out there and see your thoughts. He was very highly sensitive to noise to the point that his father could not watch television at night, no matter how low the volume was, because it would set Ted Kaczynski off. Mm. He was very rigid and dogmatic in his sense of right and wrong. Mm. For example, scolding his mother for telling a fib so that she could get out of a friend date. Oh, (laughs) God, have I been there? (laughs) Has your child scolded you for this? Yep. (laughs) Yep. And complaining that uh, that everybody else was hypocritical and materialistic, no matter what his, he might be showing the exact same behaviors, but he would be kind of putting it on others. Oh, well, they're hypocritical. I did this because of this. Mm-hmm. One Washington Post article describes him as parts of a personality, not fully integrated into a whole. Mm. At times rigid, cruel, and moody, and at other times pleasant, compassionate, with erratic mood swings between the two sides. Mm. I do see a lot of kind of flags of autism here. I mean, the sensory stuff right away. Yeah, the sensitivity. So, so often I see like late diagnosed young adults and teenagers. Mm -hmm. One of the things that their parents will say almost every time. Though they have a very strong sense of justice. Yeah, it's that, yeah, that black and white (laughs) thinking and that, yeah. Yeah, they're like, and that will always be something that sets them off. Well, I hit that kid because they did this wrong and they weren't following instructions. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah. I put that out there just because it's churning through my head, not because I think it fully explains why Ted Kaczynski is the way that he is. I don't think that's the, why are you like this? Yeah. But I think it can... It's a hypothesis. It's a piece, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, much is made of Ted Kaczynski's antisocial or asocial leanings. In another Washington, I think a similar Washington Post article, his mother stated that she never really worried about pushing Ted academically. She felt that she never had to coerce him or push him to study beyond his attention span as a child. She never wanted to do that. Mm. But she did feel like she had to push him socially. As early as age three, preschool teachers commented that Ted struggled to play with children. They would note that he would play beside them, but would get very upset if they ever interfered with his play. Mm. Turk tried to, Turk, his father, tried to get Ted to join Boy Scouts, which was reportedly an immediate disaster (laughs) and (laughs) triggered another one of Ted's shutdowns. Um, Periods of isolations that, quote, going dark. Eventually, his parents decided to stop pushing him. They worried that by pushing him, they were making him more stubborn and making him more isolative. Again, I think that most parents recognize that <laughs> at some point. They're like, okay, I I, I just need to stop this. Mm, yeah. He would occasionally play in the neighborhood. He would happily play with his brother, like I said, as long as it was the way that Ted wanted him to play. But what's interesting is that to many people outside of Ted's family, to many just kind of lookers on, Ted seemed like a completely normal kid. He was a little mischievous, but he was generally well-behaved, precocious, polite. And by high school, he really had found his clique. Mm. Although he was younger and smaller than most, having skipped sixth grade, and he would eventually also skip 11th grade, 
He was known as the ringleader of, quote, the briefcase boys. Aw. <laughs> who <laughs> are funny. probably exactly what you imagine when I tell when I describe a group of high schoolers called the briefcase boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as the high school teacher, I'm sure you know these ones. It, it's like the Revenge of the Nerds crew. Yep. Yep. They were a small group of nerdy outcast kids called so because instead of carrying their books in a knapsack or a book bag, they carried them in a briefcase. Adorable. I mean, not the Ted Kaczynski part, but... Not the Ted Kaczynski part, but every other part. That's adorable. That's so Mm -hmm. cute. Also, Revenge of the Nerds is terrible. Um, It is awful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He was kind of known throughout the school as a harmless troublemaker. Mm. He, with the other briefcase boys, would play pranks, making small explosives from powders and chemicals from the chemistry lab. Mm. And by that, I mean, like, little paper poppers where you'd put, like, two chemicals in each side of the paper, and then you'd, like, untwist it, and they'd combine and explode. Yeah. Small pipe bombs and things like that. But again, this is, like, the 50s, maybe into the 60s. <laughs> These were yeah. pranks that a lot of kids were pulling. Yeah. I mean, the the equivalent now to me feels like, like, working with kids every day feels like the kids that, you know, find a way around the school network to download games and or you know i've got kids that got into some pretty big trouble this year for like hacking into the school's wi-fi and figuring out like the school like the overall like school server passwords and things like that like it's like (laughs) these powers channeled for bad things could be pretty catastrophic but but they're just gonna play roblox yeah nine times out of ten they're just gonna play roblox and like mess around and it's not like that big of a deal and in some ways you want to kind of applaud the skill set because it does take like in both situations like it takes a pretty strong degree of like intellectual capacity and stamina to do Mm -hmm. that you know and you're like okay can we just get you into like a coding class or a computer Mm -hmm. science class like there are way better things that you can be doing with this yeah yeah, but that feels like the same thing. Like, you'd probably do really well in advanced chemistry class, you know? Yeah. Like, go hack the blockchain, kiddo. Yeah, exactly. Go steal some Bitcoin. It's not real anyway. Mm-hmm. One of these struggles with this was that he never seemed to really recognize the consequences of his actions. Mm. For example, when a friend asked him how he could make a more powerful explosive, Ted told him exactly what to do, what chemicals to use, how to combine them, what amounts. And that friend ended up making an explosive so powerful that it blew out a window and damaged a girl's hearing oh geez and ted would eventually get in trouble for this but a classmate that went to school with him just said he really just didn't consider the consequences of these actions Mm -hmm. like to him it was literally just a combination of chemicals and answering a question yeah very concrete Mm. gosh i have i feel like my tangents are too much but now go go I just, I don't want to say the sentence, I relate to Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. But I do think I can speak a lot to, like, what is it like to move through school as a kid like that? Mm-hmm. Like, having skipped grades and being kind of, like, at a different age and, like, therefore kind of different socially, but, like, mm-hmm. you find your click. And one thing that I, like, really struggled with as a kid in a similar situation where, you know, I was skipping grades and stuff like that. and You doing... skipped first and seventh, right? Kindergarten and seventh. Kindergarten yeah. and seventh. Um, but I do, and I still struggle with this, and, like, I'll be very honest about it. Like, there is, I think, a sense when you grow up like that and you grow up with this, like, 
you're gifted, you're bright, you're special Mm -hmm. mentality. And in some ways, like you are left alone so much, Mm -hmm. like in school and, and for me outside of school too, that like consequences don't even occur to you as a thing that applies to you. And certainly Mm -hmm. that's something I struggled with in school. Like on the few occasions that I would do something worth getting in trouble, my mentality was like, you're punishing me for that. (laughs) Like that's stupid. And like my pushback would be like, that's a dumb thing to waste your time punishing me about. Like, don't Mm -hmm. you have something better to do? And I think that's like that's a really harmful thing that we do sometimes with kids that are quote unquote gifted is like we leave them alone so much that mm-hmm. a lot of these like normative things don't apply. And then I think, of course, you develop like a dogmatic sense of right and wrong and mm-hmm. and this sense of like the superiority of your own actions because mm-hmm. you've been you have been conditioned to believe that that is the case. Like I certainly mm-hmm. was conditioned to believe that my that I did know better, you know. And I, I th- fight with I, that yeah. all the time for myself. Oh, yeah. I want you to hold on to that. We're going to go through a little bit more of a chunk. And then I think that that becomes super duper relevant when we talk mm. about like, what are you talking about? I am the smartest person here. How are you punishing me? Yeah. Um, I had horrible anxiety and insecurity from the age of four. So I never experienced that. Mm. No, I had um, Ted Kaczynski and I have the same moon sign and therefore we have the same God (laughs) complex. (laughs) (laughs) I'm cutting that and just going to paste it all over the internet. (laughs) Uh, Oh God, that's so good. Um, So in addition to these honestly, Pretty, pretty culturally normative shenanigans at the time. My dad has told me stories about just shit that he blew up in high school and Mm -hmm. like the trouble that him and his brothers would get into. And it was no different than some of this stuff. Um, Because he was also a nerd. He was probably a briefcase boy. Oh, Um, my gosh. Your dad was such a briefcase boy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think my grandpa would have let him be a briefcase boy, but he was a briefcase boy in in his his heart. heart. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, Ted Kaczynski was active in several clubs. He was in chess club, German club, biology club, math club. Boy, such a briefcase boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I think that points to the fact that he was not, as a child, some isolative loner. Mm-hmm. I think the struggle was, like you kind of alluded to, the more he advanced through these classes, the less he fit in. Mm-hmm. You know, he ended up taking summer school classes and eventually graduated to high school at 15. Um, he has that May birthday, so like mm-hmm. right before he turned 16. Mm-hmm. And there is a massive difference between a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old socially. Oh, it doesn't yeah. matter what your intellect is. Mm-mm. In terms of goals, physical maturity, communication, it doesn't seem as though Ted was really bullied or rejected, but simply that there was no way that he could be socially successful. Mm-hmm. And reading through his own readings, this is one of the things that he says that I think actually has merit. Mm. He felt set up by his parents to be put on a pedestal to be something to kind of parade around in the neighborhood as a point of pride rather than addressing his developmental needs. Mm. I think his parents really were trying to make the best decision that they knew how to make at the time. Yeah. Um, I do think that there's also a part of cultural pride there. I mean, mm-hmm. 
Polacks, we love parading a kid around. <laughs> we fucking love parading a kid around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I honestly, like, I feel like it sounds just, like, no different than almost any other gifted kid story I could think of. Right? It is. It's every gifted. It's. I'm not going to say every gifted kid, because I do think that some parents do a wonderful job of, like, making sure that they nurture their kid on the different levels that they're developing in. No. Yeah. One classmate described Ted saying that he was, quote, never really seen as a person, as an individual. He's always regarded as a walking brain. Mm. I think there was a part of Ted that liked this, just like every gifted kid likes this. Mm -hmm. Ted liked to be the smartest person in the room. And in fact, he did not cope well when he would eventually suddenly not be the smartest person in the room. Mm. Now we get to the gifted kid lash out. In 1958, at age 16, Ted would attend Harvard University. Mm. Reportedly, this is very much pushed by his parents. Well, others, I think some teachers and some kind of friends of theirs, you know, tried to warn his parents like, hey, Ted is way too immature. He's not ready for college. He's definitely not ready to go away to college. I don't think he had any independent living skills whatsoever. Mm. Again, we talk about like intellectual skills versus adaptive functioning. Yeah. Reportedly, Turk took a lot of pride in the idea of his son attending Harvard. He loved the idea of a child prodigy. Mm. And Harvard fucking loves a child prodigy, too. Oh, yeah. They fucking love labeling anyone that they can. They love accepting anybody that they can label as a child prodigy. Mm -hmm. Who knows what kind of social emotional supports they have now, but I'm guessing in 1958 it was nothing. Um, but Ted's parents actually did reach out to Harvard and express their concerns, knowing about Ted's moodiness and his shutdowns, one of which was triggered by, um, I think that this, they reached out after a campus visit, um, is kind of the timeline that I'm putting together. There was a campus visit where he eventually kind of went to the campus to see the school like you do, and he just had another one of those going dark shutdowns where he wouldn't talk to people, he wouldn't communicate, And his parents then started to really worry about what is life going to be like for him living there full time. So his mother wrote a letter to the school describing her son as saying that he spends most of his time alone in his makeshift makeshift lab of a bedroom, experimenting and testing in physics and chemistry, puttering around in isolation. The vibe I got from this was, will you make sure you check on my boy? Hmm. When Ted started at Harvard, his freshman year in 1958, he, like I said, quickly found himself to no longer be the standout child genius and the smartest kid in the room. Yeah. In fact, he was one of 10 16-year-olds to start that year. Hmm. Of which included another student who had already taken advanced courses at MIT, one who had already been published in the Journal of Symbolic Logic, A journal that I looked up and can make zero sense out of a single article. (laughs) (laughs) And the son of the poet Dylan Thomas. Really? You got some competition, Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, no kidding. And, well, Ted Kaczynski might have had the IQ of Einstein. He had the EQ, the emotional intelligence, or the emotional quotient of a middle schooler. Mm. He quickly became overwhelmed by his new home at Harvard He isolated even further, even more severely than he ever had before. He was studying eight hours a day, which for a gifted kid that just kind of flew through high school with no effort. Uh Uh-huh. 
Oof. Yeah. Duh. I remember the first time you had to take a math course. Girl. <laughs> <laughs> I was so. And here's the thing. I was so mad. I was so mad. That was like, and I remember like, of all the like range of emotions, the, the like just that feeling of like being affronted by that. Mm-hmm. I know that's why so much of this like speaks to me in a way that just it it makes it's uncomfortable. Sense. Yeah, it's it's uncomfy. And it, it's it's funny to come to that like again, I think that I was a pretty smart kid. I took some pretty advanced classes, but like I have such a spiky skill profile that I never experienced this like everything is easy. Mm. I couldn't say my name until I was about 8. But I think that that experience of like, you're no longer the smartest person in the room. Suddenly you have to study. It is this like, how dare you not recognize how brilliant I am? Yeah. It also gives you an identity crisis because like Mm -hmm. I have been good at things my entire life. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you're faced with this like, wait a minute, I'm not. I mean, I'm I'm smart, but I'm not necessarily the smartest person here. I'm not necessarily the, you know, now I have to work. And mm-hmm. that is, that is like, it's a big affront to your identity when you have not really had to everything, like effortlessness becomes a part of who you are, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? And it's not only something that you've told yourself. It's something everyone else has told has you. Has validated for you over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you have been pushed forward. You've been put up on this pedestal. Whether you ever wanted it, you kind of have to accept it. Yeah. So he, suddenly again, he's spending eight hours a day studying. He rarely left his single small dorm room except to get food and eventually ended up eating most of his meals in his dorm room completely isolated. Mm. And apparently never really cleaned up after himself. Others would say that his room smelled of spoiled milk, mildew, and rotting food. This was a depression room. Mm-hmm. I have seen depression rooms before. This was a depression room. Yeah. When, like, you can't even get up the self-care energy to clean a glass. Yeah. Or to throw away your food. Like, mm. it's rough. Yeah. From what I gather, again, it was that situation of Ted was never really rejected by his peers at Harvard. After all, he was one of 10 other 16-year-olds. They were all housed together, at least. He wasn't the only emotionally immature one there. It was So it wasn't that they rejected him, but he rejected them. He Hmm. chose to isolate himself and pull away. There was one documentary I saw, the Unabomber in his own words, where one person comes forward and says, oh, yeah, me and Ted were friends at Harvard. So, again, for the first time, he wasn't the exceptional student. He didn't stand out much, even with his grades. His instructors didn't remember him. He didn't leave an impression on him. He earned a B average and didn't even graduate with honors. Hmm. And here's where we also have to talk about another myth. Do you know about the Marie studies? Mm -mm. Or the psychological experiments on Ted Kaczynski at Harvard? No. All right. This sent me down a rabbit hole because I actually really like Henry Murray. Mm. (laughs) While Ted was at Harvard, he participated in a three-year study completed by Henry Murray. And first here, I'm going to clarify something because some of the podcasts that I listen to talk about Henry A. Murray, who a very famous psychologist. He recreated the thematic apperception test, one of my favorite psychological tests. They say that Henry Murray had no formal psychological training. 
Murray had an MD and a PhD in biology. And mm. at the time that he would have been studying in the early 19 teens, a psychology degree was exceedingly rare. Mm. I think that we really forget how young of a science psychology is. The first ever PhD in psychology was awarded to G. Stanley Hall in 1878. Hmm. That is how young a science of psychology is. So in the early 1900s, it was pretty typical that most people that identified as psychologists had MDs or PhDs or in some other field. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the first psychology clinic at Harvard was not set up until 1927. Murray was initially the assistant director of the clinic and eventually took the position of director in 1928. Mm. Um, so this was about 30 years before Ted would begin his experiments there. Mm. Okay. Murray did seek formal instruction under Carl Jung. I think that's kind of one of the best ones that you can go to at the time for formal instruction. Yeah. As he was fascinated by the development of personality. Murray developed, like I said, my personal favorite psych test, this thematic apperception test. Mm. He explored the idea of latent and mani manifest psychological needs. All of those kind of needs that we don't necessarily state, we may not necessarily be aware of, but are expressed through our actions. Mm. As well as he explored the motivations and drives to meet those needs and how they are reflected in our behavior. Mm. All of that aside, that's just me going on tangents and this is why things take me so long to research. People who care about the Ted Kaczynski research care about um, Murray's experiments as they relate to the OSS the Office of Strategic Services, later to be known as the CIA. Mm. There are really mixed reports as to whether or not he was actually working for the OSS or whether the OSS slash CIA just took his research and utilized it. Mm. He was working at Harvard. There was a lot of OSS CIA research going on, so I'd believe it either way. There, Murray was exploring the effects of extreme stress and interpersonal behavior. This specific experiment Ted Kaczynski was recruited in explored. Um, he was kind of targeted by a personality test because Murray wanted to explore the role of narcissism. Ah. He wanted to believe how people who scored high on scales of narcissism would respond to their worldview and their beliefs being challenged or undermined. Mm, perfect. Perfect. Essentially, this involved, like, many, many years of study. People think it's excessive to do a three-year study on the same person. Ted was one of dozens of people involved in the study, and this is actually kind of a psychologist's dream to be able to study the same cohort of people over several years yeah, and sure. get longitudinal data. This would essentially involve Ted Kaczynski filling out a lot of personality inventories, filling out a lot of symptom inventories, again, Murray was specifically looking at the role of narcissism in this study. So he would fill out these personality inventories and be brought in weekly for quote-unquote debates after researchers gathered information about their family history, their worldview, their politics, all of these good things. Reportedly, this data would be used to inform interrogation techniques eventually used by the CIA. Mm. A lot has been made of this. A lot has been made of, like, he was tortured by Henry Murray, he was used as a guinea pig in these experiments, blah, 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 blah. And this is kind of what kind of triggered his worldview. I think we need to bear in mind, at this time, Ted was 
had already been fostering a very kind of caveman isolationist anti-society worldview. He wrote in his essays that he would submit for these debates things like, quote, man owes nothing to society, unquote, and that we must reject conformity. Mm. He talked about in many of these essays, in many of these debates of like, you know, we need to reject conformity. We need to be more rebellious in our spirit. We need to return to this caveman lifestyle where we are fully individualistic and we owe nothing to each other or nothing to society. If you're curious about this, I would really encourage people to listen to the podcast Project Unabomb, where they get a hold of some of the recordings of Ted's sessions with Murray's graduate student researchers. Because what many will describe and kind of so much is made of these experiments as psychological torture and abuse hurled at Ted Kaczynski to break him down, that is not what I heard at all. Mm. Most of the sessions, like I said, he'd fill out these personality inventories. He'd go into these debates and these interviews. The most notorious session is one in which Ted was asked to write an essay about his personal philosophy, a kind of mini manifesto. And of course, like I said, by this time, Ted had developed this hyper-individualistic, anti-conformity worldview, return to nature, blah, 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 kind of bullshit. He believed that you should need no one, you should count on no one. He expressed what the interview described as, quote, chest-beating, caveman approach to the world. The job of the graduate assistant after reading this essay was to challenge and honestly demean the worldviews expressed in this little mini-manifesto. It was to kind of kind of break him down. Like, how are you going to stand up to me really kind of hurling your shit to the mm, wall? Yeah. It means nothing. This is dumb. Again, this was because Ted had already scored high on scales of narcissism. Yeah. And honestly, I think that the researcher did a decent job. I also think that Ted did a decent job of kind of defending against it. He kind of chuckles at it. He makes, you know, the researcher makes fun of Ted's shitty beard that he's trying to grow, <laughs> um, commenting on how he is, quote, conforming to the nonconformist, calls his essay and his worldview overly simplistic. And Ted is initially clearly shaken and annoyed and frustrated, but I wouldn't say he's at all broken by it. Hmm. He holds his own. He throws it back a little bit at the interviewer. Honestly, I've had worse tongue lashings and worse teardowns in a public seminar, in a public clinical seminar. Mm. Like, sit in on one graduate level liberal arts class. Yeah. (laughs) And you will get worse than what I heard in this interview that's interesting but again like we know all this like retroactively right Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. like we're looking at this through the specific lens of what happened to ted kaczynski so Mm -hmm. yeah we know that by this time so he's six this happened to him at the ages of 16 to 19 Mm. i will say your worldview and your sense of identity and ego security is way more fragile at the age of 16 than it is at 19 yeah It probably was irresponsible of them to engage him as a 16-year-old. But even at that time, he was already showing signs of narcissism. It seemed to me pretty, pretty readily, like, noticeable that he was already pretty fragile in terms of his sense of self and his identity. Yeah. Limited data has been released from the study. Much has been made made of the lack of ethics due to obfuscation and the true reasons for the study. It probably wouldn't pass IRB today. Mm. Again, we can kind of look at it through today's lens. IRB, 
didn't really exist back then. I will say in psychological studies, you are allow a certain you are allowed a certain level of obfuscation. Yeah, as long as you provide a debrief at the end of it. But again, listening to what is made available, like I said, I've had worse interrogations from professors in public seminars. Even Ted Kaczynski himself says that the role of this study has also been overblown. He described it as, yes, it was psychological harassment. It was uncomfortable. But nothing of this study ever came out until many years later when his journals were released. Mm. Yeah, that was my other question is like, what was the real life like, I don't know, the consequence or the fallout? Like in real time? In real time, nothing other than kind of, I think, what was already happening to him. Yeah. That he was getting very isolative. He was getting very insecure. And when narcissists get insecure, that goes really, really badly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He was writing letters to his brother at the time. He was writing letters to his parents. But he never mentioned any of these studies to anyone else. Mm. So... Again, kind of that one friend in the Unabomber in his own words talks about it and says, oh, you should just leave the study, which Ted was free to leave the study at any time. He just had to not return. Mm. Um, But he kind of justified it saying, again, later in the letters to his brother and in later interviews said, I wanted to prove that they couldn't break me. I mean, so much of the time he just sounds like very typical in some ways to me i know that's my thing is like yeah i feel like i've met this person many 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 times like you're angry you're lashing out you're overconfident but also insecure you don't relate to people none of this stands out in any like it stands out to me as a psychologist to say you need help let's get you to talk to somebody Mm mm-hmm but not in the level of, I trust me, I've met kids that I'm like. Where all your red flags are mm-hmm. waving. But yeah, I mean, so but, far, like, this just sounds like a pretty typical smart kid with some inclinations that I feel like I've heard many, many, many times and that I feel like I've seen in myself and in others many, many, many times. Yeah, a typical angry, gifted kid. Mm-hmm. I I honestly think that this study did have a big effect on Ted, not because it brainwashed him, not because it was this horrific abuse and torture, but because he was already, like, his ego was an eggshell at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he came to Harvard thinking he was the smartest kid on the planet. That's what everybody had told him. And he's just not. He's an average student at Harvard. Yeah that's that sounds terrible yeah that hurts man according to an article from the guardian this was really when ted kind of started to harbor some resentment um again he wanted to lash out but his resentment kind of turned in odd places it went deeper inward in his kind of isolation here's the thing i want to also explain when you are depressed when you are resentful when you're angry and all you do is isolate when you have no other voices no other opinions no other reframes your mind goes weird fucking places yeah yeah 
and his mind went into this deeper inward. He was resentful about what was happening to him. He started to feel aggressive. He started to feel like he wanted to retaliate against all these people who were telling him he wasn't great and telling him he wasn't brilliant. But that resentment toward other people manifested into resentment against what he felt was his own conditioning and his own social conditioning. Mm. He said that if he hadn't been conditioned by his family and conditioned by society, then he would be able to act out on his aggression and he could harm all these people that he felt had harmed him. Hmm. That's interesting. One of his quotes from one of his journals, he said, quote, I never attempted to put any such fantasies into effect because I was too strongly conditioned against any defiance to authority. I could not have committed a crime of revenge, even a relatively minor crime, because my fear of being caught and punished was all out of proportion to to the actual danger of being caught. Mm. So he's already starting to have these fantasies of retaliation and these fantasies of revenge and aggression. But he's saying, I'm too well conditioned by my family and by society. Mm. In an undated letter to his brother David, Ted writes, quote, I am forced to the humiliating confession that the reason I've never committed any crime is that I've been successfully brainwashed by society. On an intellectual level, I have only contempt for authority, but on an animal level, I have all too much respect for it. My training has been quite successful in this regard, and the strength of my conditioned inhibitions is such that I don't believe I could ever commit a serious crime. Hmm. Well, you were wrong, buddy. Well, this was very early, early on. Yeah. So if he's, only he had hung on to that. <laughs> he's harboring these fantasies of revenge. He's harboring these animalistic sense of like, I want to lash out. I want to hurt people. Mm-hmm. But I'm too conditioned like a little sad puppy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Ted graduates Harvard in 1962. He really wants to go to Berkeley or University of Chicago. Mm. But neither of them offer him any money or scholarship. Ah, uh, bummer. So, because, again, he wasn't that great of a student at at Harvard. Yeah. He doesn't want to go somewhere if he's not offered a financial package. So so eventually, he gets an offer from the University of Michigan for a small grant and a teaching fellowship. Hmm. And that's why he ends up at University of Michigan. Ah. So, God fucking damn at Michigan. Yeah. Man, we had to get involved, huh? You had to give him that grant. Because I can't imagine he was a great teacher. I just... I mean, probably not. <laughs> he doesn't seem very interested in communicating with other people effectively, so... <laughs> to be fair, he was miserable at the University of Michigan. Mm. Because he's lame, that campus is beautiful and amazing and so much fun. It is. It really is. <laughs> of note, Ted is obviously still a very buttoned-up conservative. Mm. Which will really make you stand out at the University of Michigan. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, Yes. And even more so when he graduates from the University of Michigan and goes to UC Berkeley. Oh, boy. There there are no briefcase boys out there. There are no briefcase boys. It's hacky Berkeley. sack boys. <laughs> it's only hacky sack boys. Another level of insufferability. <laughs> <laughs> or the object of every crush I had until the age of like 23. <laughs> oh, God. Aren't we all glad we grew out of that? Yes. Yes. Uh, because uh, Berkeley, prime hippie, prime anti-war protesting level. Again, we're in the 1960s now. We're prime mm. Vietnam War protests. Boy just does not fit in. Mm. Um, I find it so interesting that he keeps going to these places 
where he just culturally does not fit. Yeah. I'm like, why didn't you just go to Hillsdale? You'll find some briefcase boys at Hillsdale. But you're not going to find any of the prestige. That's that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Like Harvard, Michigan, Berkeley, those are prestige names. I mean, I did the same thing. I When I was applying to graduate school, it was what was the most prestigious place that accepts me. And that was 100% the my litmus test for like where I was going to go. Because that's going to give you back that whatever mm-hmm. you lost yep. when you stop being the smartest person in the room. Exactly. You'll always have the name on your resume. So Ted kind of, you know, buries his head in his work. He buries his head in the sand that is mathematics. Mm-hmm. I love math, but I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. Um, my actual, my advisor in undergrad told me that I should Actually, in high school and in college and in undergrad again told me that I should go into math or physics. <laughs> They're like, are you sure you want to do psychology? Maybe you just go to this other thing. That doesn't that require people skills. That would have been an interesting skills. path. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to person if you do this. Yep. Mr. Yoder really wanted me to study physics. Mm, too bad. Gifted kid. In very specific areas. <laughs> um... Anyway, anyway, so he buries his head in math. He fits in a little bit better in his, in his math classes. As a professor of mathematics, the other professors, the other faculty like him. But it's also, again, kind of easy to stand out. He's working on his doctorate in mathematics. He's teaching. Graduate programs in mathematics are kind of small by necessity, so it's pretty easy to stand out mm. when you have like three cohort mates yeah he did great research he ended up getting an award for his dissertation expectedly he was a terrible teacher and he hated it he was very upset at the fact that he had to teach at michigan and at berkeley he also started to kind of have um another little kind of a crisis i'm pulling this from uh the book hunting the unabomber but it's described in several different documentaries and things like that in 1966 ted began to experience quote intense and persistent sexual fantasies about being a woman Hmm. now ted never really dated prior to this i don't believe it was because of a lack of interest in women as we will see but a lack of skill and a lack of emotional maturity we'll talk in a bit but he has big incel vibes Hmm. so these fantasies about being a woman and having like sexual fantasies about being a woman. This is Hmm. not about gender identity. This is not about like, this is how I feel. This is where my inclinations are. And this is where I'm comfortable. They were genuine sexual fantasies. Hmm. And they began to really plague him and become really troublesome to the point that he decides he is going to seek out a sex change to become a woman. And he would actually begin taking the steps to do this, which at the time, the first step was to seek out a psychological evaluation. At the time, nobody, literally nobody outside of Ted himself knew about this. We know about it now because his journals have been released. Even after his journals were released and this came out, David, Ted's brother, was utterly shocked by the Hmm. fact that Ted ever sought out a sex change or gender confirmation. I'm not even going to call it kind of confirmation surgery because I don't think that's what this was. Hmm. Um, It's not really discussed anywhere else in his journal 
a discussion of like gender identity, his feelings. It was really kind of poorly hashed out attempt at curing his own loneliness and a desire for sexual contact with a woman. Hmm. So, like I said, he went so far as to set up a psychiatric evaluation to pursue this. He made the appointment. However, when he called the psychiatrist to make the appointment, he did not specify what the appointment was for. So he shows up for the psych eval and a basically psychiatrist was basically like, okay, like what brings you here? As soon as the evaluator said that, Ted panicked. He mentally turned heel away from the idea of gender and sex and spent the entire session just saying, well, I'm anxious and I'm nervous about the draft and I don't want to be drafted, blah, 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 blah. Hmm. The psychiatrist offered him some advice and support and kind of said, well, you, you know, you'll probably get, you know, you know, review or like passed over because you're in graduate school, you're a teacher, whatever. And and Ted was just kind of like, okay, and then went on his way. But of course, instead of reflecting on this experience in like a mature 20-something-year-old way, Ted mentally lashes out at the psychologist in his journal, saying that the psychologist humiliated him. He blamed them for his inability to, inability to disclose what he wanted that the psychologist was an idiot, that he now hated humanity, and even though he has felt this hatred for a long time now because of what that psychologist did to him, he was ready to kill because of the humiliation. From his journals, from Ted Kaczynski's journals, quote, As I walked away from the building afterward, I felt disgusted about what my uncontrolled sexual cravings had almost led me to do. And I felt humiliated, and I violently hated the psychiatrist. Just then there came a major turning point in my life. Like a phoenix in mythology, a bird that burned to ashes only to be reburned, I burst from the ashes of my despair to a glorious new hope. I thought I wanted to kill that psychiatrist because the future looked utterly empty to me. I felt I wouldn't care if I died. And I also said to myself, why not kill the psychiatrist and anyone else whom I hate? What is important is not the words that ran through my mind, but the way I felt in them. What was entirely new was the fact that I felt I really could. I could kill someone. My very hopelessness had liberated me because I no longer cared about death. I no longer cared about the consequences. And I said to myself, I really could break out of my rut in life and do things that were daring, irresponsible, or criminal. Hmm. Thoughts? I mean, I feel like it seems like a situation where he's kind of like waited for the tiniest possible trigger to like justify something he's been wanting to say for a very long time right like yeah i don't think that that was like actually the first time he ever had a thought like that you know no. i think he was waiting to feel waiting to feel like he had an excuse mm-hmm. i guess or waiting to feel like he had like that moment that he could say this is when i turned you know mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. though i think we could all probably see that he he was well turning the entire time you know yeah it wasn't like a quick turn it was like yeah okay well now you've we're the trending toward that you yeah. were already on yeah you know those people who are like waiting for a trigger and they're like poking everyone around them to try mm-hmm. to get them to respond and then finally they get it and it's like oh oh told you so told you so this is it yeah you did this to me you made me do this and you're like, mm-hmm. oh. yeah. yeah yeah that's what that feels like to me is just like he needed to have it's funny because it reminds me of his mom in a way like she needed to have that like 
the baby fell on his head story. Mm-hmm. And this almost feels like his, like, this is the moment that changed me moment. Mm-hmm. Then he was craving that able to, like, ability to label a moment in his life. Yep. Mm. So after leaving that appointment, he made the decision that there was nothing wrong with him. Everything was wrong with society. Everything mm-hmm. was wrong with the psychiatrist. Everything was wrong with the people that conditioned him. You know, everything was wrong with the people that made him feel bad, the people that made him follow the rules, the people that made him feel outcasted and alone. And at that time, he started to recall a book that he had read and he was in, in school. The Technological Society by author Jacques Ellul. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Jacques Ellul. Hmm. I'm just going to give you the Amazon summary quote. Elul offers a penetrating analysis of our technological civilization, showing how technology, which began innocuously enough as to serve humankind, threatens to overthrow humanity itself in its ongoing creation of an environment that meets its own needs. Mm. Ted jumped on this and spun on it. And honestly, most of his manifesto is just a rehash of this book, from Mm. what I gather. Yeah. He decided that his ultimate goal was to live alone in the wilderness. He wants Same. to disappear into the Canadian countryside, <laughs> be isolated from, soci- from the society he feels has ruined him and the technology he has filled has ruined everyone else. Mm. Again, has everybody in a doctoral program not felt this? I mean, I, I just like, I feel like everything about this sometimes just feels like such a stereotype to me because it's like... I have 100% had that fantasy and I've like, I love those stories. I love a solitary genius. Mm-hmm. I, I too fantasize about like the cabin that I would live in in the mountains where I just get to like be smart and be left alone. <laughs> like that is an active fantasy that I've had for my entire life. You know, I mean, I have talked on this show about my no people weekends mm-hmm. and they are the most brilliant weekends. If they happened in a cabin in the Canadian wilderness, God damn, if I wouldn't be perfect. Yeah. For me, it's the Alaskan wilderness, but I'm right there with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just feels like every stereotype, like just on a checklist. I know. And that's why I'm like, oh, Ted, Ted Kaczynski is so unique. He's so brilliant. You know, he's unlike other people. I'm like, Bitch, that everybody goes through this. Yeah, he's just this notorious. Is honestly, painfully relatable. Yeah, yeah, and that's the hard part is that it is it is relatable. What's not relatable is that he the actions that he takes. Obviously, yeah, he becomes further reclusive from the world around him. He has no interest in others. In this isolation, he develops just this increasingly odd and increasingly rigid worldview. That technology has killed individualism, that we've removed from our natural place in the wild as independent, self-sufficient beings, which I'm also going to call bullshit on. Everything that we know about evolution has to do with society and interdependence. Yeah. Ted believed that collectivism and leftism have created a culture of conformity over socialization and self-victimization. The media has brainwashed people into giving up their power and strength, and that this happens when you spend... This thought spiral happens when you spend too much time in any echo chamber, Mm. but especially when that echo chamber is your own head. Okay, 1967, Ted moves from University of Michigan to a tenure-track position at UC Berkeley. Hotbed for anti-war protests, civil rights demonstration, the center of counterculture. And um, honestly, a lot of the counterculture at the time was very anti-technology. To many anti-war protesters, anti-war meant anti-technology. So what's interesting is he could have found a community here. 
but he labeled these people as dumb leftists and that he was smarter than them. Interesting. Ted, again, never really got involved in this. He remained a loner. He really kind of looking down on the protesters. Again, he didn't really excel at Berkeley. He, according to his teacher ratings, he was a terrible instructor. Even his research, according to others in the math department, wasn't anything groundbreaking or exciting. He had, you know, won awards for his dissertation and his original research in that. But everything that he did after his dissertation, once he moved on to Berkeley, was described as kind of derivations and rehashing of his dissertation. Mm. In the two and a half years that he was at Berkeley, he published only six papers on very similar topics. And there were rumblings that he might not make tenure if he were put up for it. Hmm. Yikes. Which would be humiliating for him absolutely humiliating right yeah and i mean i think even in the 60s it was very it was a different level of publisher parish but it was still pretty much published oh 100 percent. yeah i'm certain something else happened too in february 1969 there were violent demonstrations involving students trying to preserve a plot of land known as the people's park a group of students moved onto land to try to protect it i i don't know this but i like to imagine the kind of like chaining yourself to trees level environment level of environmentalism hell yeah man <laughs> um, however that started in february 1969 they remained there for several months by may authorities moved in with tear gas shot students with several of the students that were living in the park dying jeez the then governor the great ronald reagan mm made a statement vowing that if students wanted a bloodbath, they'd get one. Oh, jeez. Thanks, Ronnie. Monster. This happened all literally across the street from where Ted was living. Oh, wow. Yeah. And a month later after that bloodbath began, Ted left Berkeley. Hmm. Now, Ted would say it was always his plan to leave Berkeley. Mm. This is very like I I read this and it was very much a moment of it was always our plan uh-huh. to be behind at the halftime. Yep, yep. Yeah, we definitely planned it this way. Yeah, I planned it this way. Because you can't be wrong. That's the scariest thing in the world if you're someone like this. He said it was always his plan to leave Berkeley, that he only ever planned on staying long enough to save up the money to buy his own land and disappear into the wilderness to live his solitary life. Mm. I'm going to call his bluff because he did not leave with a good enough chunk of money to buy land. Mm. In fact, he left Berkeley to go live in his parents' house. Oh, good. He would eventually approach his brother about buying a plot of land in Canada to go halvesies on, which David, who still very, very much idolized his brother. Mm. Like, and, and I, That's I don't tough. know, I get that. I get yeah. that. Oh, his yeah. brother didn't know about the level of extremist beliefs. He just knew, this is my genius brother and I love him and we go camping together. And he's got this PhD and he's super successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my parents adore him. A seven year age gap is a big age gap. It's big. Yeah. So his brother agreed to this. They spent the summer of 1969 looking for a space, but ran into some issues when they had to go through the Canadian government to buy the land. I don't know what it was. If it was like some citizen issue, citizenship issue, an income issue, you have to prove like you're going to utilize this land, whatever. Mm. Um, But when this happened, when the Canadian government was like, 
cool, send us your application and all of these documents, Ted had another one of those major shutdowns. Mm. He reportedly turned off, stopped talking, and would not respond to his brother for an entire day. Would not respond to questions, even if David offered him help. Do you want food? Do you, what's going on? Nothing. Like catatonic. Interesting. The next day, he, quote, snapped out of it and acted like nothing happened. And David never addressed this with him. It took about two years while they were processing the permit, during which time Ted lived with his parents. When his parents asked him what his plan was, he just said that he refused to go back to Berkeley because he hated teaching and thought everyone was dumber than him. (laughs) Probably shouldn't be a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) He also said that he didn't want to teach engineers anymore because they would use math to destroy the planet. Hmm. Some engineers might use math to, te- to destroy the planet. But there are just as many, if not more, that are using math to save the planet. Yes. And you should only use math for good. Yes, not evil. No evil <laughs> math. Ted really struggled to keep a job, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he worked for a few... He would get a job, work for a few weeks, and then either quit without notice or just not show up. Mm. This sounds like wicked, like, gifted kid burnout. Yeah. He would spend his days retreating to the library or the woods surrounding the Chicago land area. Eventually, Canada declined Ted and David's land application. When Ted got the news of this, he just walked out of the house. Hmm. Wanda recalled that she woke up early one morning and caught him on his way out. She tried to stop him as she poured herself coffee to chat, be like, hey, where are you going? What's going on? He waved her off, pointed to a note on the table, and said, it's easier this way. Hmm. The note said, quote, you're the best parents anyone could ever have. Please don't worry about me. I just want to go on my way. His parents were obviously mortified because you get a note from that, like that from your struggling adult son. Yeah, it reads like a suicide note. And that was immediately what they saw. They they knew he was in another... At this point, I think that they had really identified, okay, these are depressive episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were worried that this was a suicide note. He left no information as to where he was going. His parents reached out to David, who was living in Great Falls, Montana at the time. But David said, hadn't really heard anything. Hmm. Until a few days later, when Ted just showed up on David's doorstep looking for a place to stay. Hmm. David obviously called his parents. Hey, he's here. It's whatever. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> he and David were able to find another spot near Helena, Montana, to go have these on. They bought a small piece of land in Montana, just two point four acres in the mountains, bordered um, by a neighboring sawmill that will mm. be important later on, where they would build a small ten by twelve foot one room cabin with no toilet, electricity, or running water, which Ted would now live in. Wow. Ten by twelve. That is, it's like, probably about the size of, like, a bedroom in my house. Ted would live in the cabin that they had built, living off the land, finding edible plants, drinking from the local stream. Well, this initially gave him, like, a sense of peace, calm, not having to think about the future, society, or anything that gave him stress. Again, this is, like, everybody's fantasy, right? Yeah, he's in his Walden timeline. Yes, yeah. and we all we all deserve a Walden timeline. Mm-hmm. And when your Walden timeline goes too far, mm-hmm. you start to disappear into your own head. You start to disappear and ruminate 
on your hatred of others, on your hatred of society, your rejection of the world around you. Mm-hmm. David and Ted's parents would send him money. They would send him food, other necessities. So as much as he's saying, oh, I'm self-sufficient, he's literally being funded by his parents and his brother. Mm. Many of which of these care packages Ted would receive and write back complaining that he didn't like the sardines. The box was too big. These aren't the right crackers. The irritable rants of a failed child genius. Yeah. Whose depression has hit heights that most of us hopefully will never know. Mm. Why am I telling you all of this? Why am I making him so relatable? Because Ted is a monster. He's also a human. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing I want us to take away from this is that he is not some cold, calculating, self-sufficient genius who did everything on his own. Like I said, like, we've all thought about this. We all want to go isolate for a while. We all kind of want to reject society for a hot minute. Yeah, he's a very, like, everyday monster. Yeah. He's a depressed man. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, he's a depressed man with no coping skills who isolated himself because that was the easiest way out that he thought of his depression. Yeah. And I think that that's a realistic and down-to-earth light to put him in. Mm. And I think looking at his mental health, looking at the depression, I think that's the best way to take away the power that the extremists and the terrorists and the acolytes try to put forward of him. Mm, Yeah. At this point, we're in the early 1970s. Ted Ted's family's contact is becoming increasingly painful and verbally abusive. He was experiencing more of these shutdowns. Even when his parents would come to visit him, they would have days of literally, like, he wouldn't respond. Like, his parents would travel all the way out to Montana to visit him. Oh, he wow. would literally not respond. So just a clarifying, like, logistical question. So he was the one, he was the only one living in that tiny cabin, and then David was, like, living in his own yeah, David house was on the same property? Okay. Not on the same property, no. David oh. lived in... Um, like, in town. Like, in town, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, he would have days of not responding. Like, there's a story. His family comes to visit him, and they're at David's. And Ted comes over, and I don't know exactly what happens, but he has another one of those shutdowns. And he just, like, curls up. He stares at the ground. He doesn't respond. He doesn't look up. He doesn't eat. He's just nothing. And then the next day he snaps out of it and he acts like nothing happened. And the whole family acts like nothing happened. Hmm. Like he's chatting, joking, like a completely normal person. Interesting. However, unfortunately, by 1978, Ted needed money. Living solitary in the cabin was becoming too difficult for him. He couldn't keep it up. So by 1978, he moves out of the cabin back into his parents' house in suburban Chicago he got a job with his father and his brother. So David also is back. I'm not like mm. David's timeline kind of parallels Ted Kaczynski's, but yeah. also he's in a live private person and I don't want to like, mm. yeah, he's got his own story. Exactly. And you can read about that story because he mm. wrote a book. So he got a job with his father and his brother at a foam cutting factory. And you know what he did when he got this job in suburban Chicago? Hmm. He met a lady. Oh, in June of 1978, in May and June of 1978, had a few dates with a nice little co-worker. They seemed to have a good time. They even kissed. Oh. His first kiss, I believe, hmm. which he describes in his journal in a really gross way, and I'm not going to share it with you, but <laughs> oh, it's gross. Oh, no, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> but after two dates, she just wasn't feeling it. Mm. And basically just kind of 
tried to give him the brush off. You know how you do. You're like, yeah, "Ah, that was a night. Thanks for dinner. I'm just not. Yeah. I'm busy. I got to wash my hair kind of thing. Mm, Been there. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, your hair routine is extensive. It is. It is. If I lay that down as an excuse, I'm probably not lying. (laughs) And Ted took this in the incelliest of ways. Mm. Which meant that he wrote limericks, dirty limerick, dirty mean limericks about her and posted them in public places around the office. Oh, for God's sake. How insufferable. After the first one that he posted, David had to reprimand him and just kind of tore it down. Like, dude, you can't do this. Mm. After the second one that he posted, David had to fire him, saying, you can't do this. You're being hostile. This is wrong. She did nothing. Yeah. Turk, his dad, was also upset, saying that Ted humiliated him. Like, I cannot believe you did this at my workplace. Yeah. This brought back up, apparently, all of the memories of the cruelty that he felt he experienced during his childhood. All of the insults, all of the, you're a creep, you're immature. And that night after being humiliated, what he felt was being humiliated by his dad, and I'm sure Turk did not, like, go soft on him. At this point, Ted is a full-ass adult Mm -hmm. who deserves to have consequences for his actions. Ted apparently came home that night filled with anguish and despair, took to his journal to explain himself away, saying that this woman had been intentionally cruel to him, had led him on, had made him look like a fool. Very inselly. None of this was true, according to anyone else who knew the woman, who knew about what had happened, was like, no, like, it's just a thing that didn't work out. Um, but Ted refused to apologize. He refused to take back his actions. In recalling this event in this particular situation, David said that this was the first time he looked at his brother and said, he's not functional. Mm. He cannot function in a social world. He can't function with other humans and be expected to understand Hmm. what's happening around him. So he may be mathematical and may have like a really high intellectual ability, but There's other skills that are just absolutely lacking. Yeah. June 23rd, 1978, Ted would leave his parents' home and make his final retreat into the woods, back Mm. to his old 10 by 12 foot cabin in Montana. So that was June 1978. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to go back just a few weeks to May 25th, 1978, to the University of Illinois Chicago campus, UIC. A random package is found on campus. Mm. with only the return address labeled to a professor buckley christ at northwestern university no one recognized it so it was sent back to northwestern to the person on the return address never made it to professor christ because a northwestern security office terry marker receives it and attempts to open the mysterious package it immediately explodes in the hands of the officer While this bomb would cause only minor damage, it would begin a series of 16 bombings that would end in the murder of three people in the largest investigation in in FBI history. Mm. And that's where we're going to pick up on his story. Oh, man. That's going to be really interesting. Ted has been rejected, gone Mm. in cell, and retreated into the woods, but not before leaving his first bomb. That is such interesting timing. Mm Mm-hmm. I, okay, I'm going to have a lot to say when we do part two. 
I'm like, I keep thinking like he would be somebody that could either be like really diffused or really like, um, I don't know another word for like just pumped up by the internet. Like if, if, if his era was like the current internet era, I feel like Reddit would take out so much of the sting for him because he could just spend all of his time like being a dick on the internet you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like there's always the possibility of people being like radicalized online but i think for so many people it's just like an outlet you know and i have to wonder like in a different context would he have just been like a really gross guy on the internet and nothing more i mean he has radicalized people on the internet there are that's plenty true. of people that take his writings take his manifesto now and that's why i kind of think it's important to present him in this way Mm. um that is incredibly painfully human and incredibly Mm -hmm. like relatable that like there's nothing special about him yeah yeah you know he doesn't have unique ideas or he didn't predict what would happen with technology he took a bunch of other people's ideas he had already read yeah and he's mad about them and used them Mm -hmm. hmm all right so the preview for next time is part two of ted kaczynski what what comes next? What did what he get comes? up to? The investigation that follows, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. So that is going to be a really interesting thing to come back for, my friends. Yep. I hope you enjoyed this. Why are you like this, Ted Kaczynski? I next did. Week will be. What the fuck did you do, Ted Kaczynski? <laughs> I feel like these are the titles. <laughs> Why are you like <laughs> this? And what the fuck did you do? <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Uh... Well, we're going to do a quick sign off here because I have to be up tomorrow to drive down to Indianapolis. So um, that was a really interesting romp that I'm going to be thinking about and probably texting you about a lot this weekend. So, yeah, friends, please do come back for part two. I'm going to be here. Meg is going to be here. here. It's going to be great. It's going to be a good time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And how great is it to choose to be here? So... Please come back for that. In the meantime, please hang out with us on the socials at MidWretched Everywhere. Rate, review, especially if you like us. And if you've gotten this far, you probably like us. So just go ahead and, and hit those stars. Yeah, that was a lot to listen to if you don't like us. Yeah, for real. Like, <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> what kind of sadist are you? You could just leave if you don't like us. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We're not. Our feelings are not hurt. It's fine. It's fine. You can just leave like Ted Kaczynski left Berkeley. Right. You can just go build a cabin in the woods somewhere and not listen to us. That's fine. That's totally fine. Anyway, I need a shower that will like maybe relieve this migraine long enough for me to fall asleep. Oh, good luck. I can hear the baby's feeding pump going off. So I need to go fix that. All right, friends. All right, friends. Be good out there. We cannot wait to continue this story and to have you here with us as we do so. Also a solitary genius. At which your chart reflects. So <laughs> you actually have like fairly similar charts, which is kind of <laughs> kind of fucked up. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I have often often criticized my own social skills. I don't think they're <laughs> quite as bad as Ted Kaczynski's.
If it helps, mine is kind of pretty close to Ed Gein's, actually. Okay. So okay. We're a little more earthy, you know? <laughs> you and Ed.